In the late 80s, um, at Queen's University Belfast, we had the privilege of having uh, Ronald McCauley come to speak. He was uh, son-in-law of Francis Schaeffer. I was from Ballymena, and uh, as you know from Ballymena, we knew pretty much it all. And I knew it all, and then this man opened up a world to me where the scriptures applied that I'd really never thought of before. That led me into reading the works of Francis Schaeffer, Os Guinness, who said most Christians would die rather than think. In fact, most do, he concluded. And to the work of Mark Noel. The scandal of the evangelical mind summed up where I was in the mid-80s and where I needed to move forward from. My daughter last night in Ballycastle said, why, Daddy, are you heading back up there? Could you not take a Sunday off? Is your family not more important than church? I didn't like to say, but it's Mark Noel. You've got to be kidding me. Um, but really, that's the truth. It is a privilege to invite someone who I think in his book and what he will say tonight is saying something that is vitally important. Therefore, faith is going to do what Jesus called us to do, which was to take this truth into every aspect of our world. We need to find our Christian mind and apply it. So it is a privilege to welcome Mark Noel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is indeed a privilege to be with you in Belfast, in northern Indiana, where Maggie and I are from. It's summertime, and the temperatures are, if I've got the centigrade Fahrenheit conversion right, regularly into the 30s, mid-30s. So to be here on a wonderful mid-fall day is just terrific. The account in John's Gospel about how Jesus began his public ministry is intriguing for many reasons. It reveals how John the Baptist passed on his ministry to the one who came after him. It shows us the introduction to the disciples, including Peter, and it provides us with the information that the disciples were people of questions and doubts, uncertainties, very much as ourselves. But perhaps the most intriguing thing about the passage is the repetition of this phrase, come and see, come and see. It's what Jesus says to two of John's disciples who ask him, where do you live? Come and see. It's what Philip says to Nathaniel after Nathaniel learns that Jesus comes from Nazareth and raises the skeptical question whether anything good can come out of that place Come and see. And as it turns out, the four Gospels relate the same or similar phrases in many different places. There's an uncertainty, an issue, an improbability, a problem. A question is raised about these matters, and the answer is, come, take a look. This morning, I'd like to review with you some of the many passages in the New Testament particularly that show us something about the heart of the Christian faith dependent upon coming and seeing, but also how these passages also give us a guide for life. In the same way that coming really to see who Jesus is opens up the true meaning of the gospel, so too does coming and seeing what reality is like in life offers a good way of living in the world. But before taking a look at the scriptures and how the scriptures describe this passage of opening up ourselves to examining the world, a cautionary story is pertinent. In 1982, 
C. Everett Koop was appointed uh, by then President Ronald Reagan to be the Surgeon General of the United States. This appointment was immediately greeted with great skepticism and outrage from the political left in the United States because of C. Everett Koop's association with Francis Schaeffer, whom we've just heard, heard mentioned. Koop had participated in the uh, books and films that Francis Schaeffer had made that particularly were aimed at the practice of abortion on demand, and Koop had been a firm opponent of that practice. He was therefore attacked from the left for being a hard-nosed, uh, inflexible conservative. The, the uh, tempest in the teapot passed. He was approved, but only a few months later, Koop began to be attacked from the right when he took proactive steps to deal with those in the United States of, of infected with the HIV-AIDS virus. He, he was, in both cases, being assaulted by people who were acting before they knew what they were talking about. And he later on complained that this uh, uh, activity showed a common pattern. Some came from the left, some came from the right, but in both cases, there was an unwillingness to look at facts on the ground in the situation. So on the left, an unwillingness to see the damage done by unlimited abortion on demand. On the right, an unwillingness to see how officials of the United States government really had to take a concern for everyone. He wrote later about this bombarding. And it, what he wrote amounted to an appeal to come and see. He, these were his words particularly about the latter situation. What bothered me most was the lack of scholarship by Christians, as if they felt that by leaning on a theological principle, they didn't have to be very accurate with the facts. People talk about knee-jerk liberals. The liberals, however, have no corner on that market. I've learned that there are also knee-jerk conservatives. We have a saying for that in the United States, and I'm not sure if it has crossed the Atlantic to the, these shores, and it goes like this. My mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. But the Gospels, the Scriptures, give us a very different account. All throughout the Bible, we see a common pattern. If you want to know something, if you want to figure out the reality of a particular situation, you must experience it. You must come and see. So that was the pattern of our Old Testament reading this morning from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words into the end of the world. And the implication of the psalm is that these words that are in creation, this voice that speaks to us as we look at the natural world, have to be attended to, must be the basis for understanding of reality. There are actually many other places in, in the psalms, particularly where this same uh, pattern appears. Just for one more, the, the famous uh, prayer of Psalm 119, where the psalmist prays that God would open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And if that pattern is seen throughout the Old Testament, it's even more prominent in the New Testament, 
where the message of the apostles did not primarily concern abstract truths, but rather truths hard won through experience. Think about Peter and John in the, in the book of Acts chapter 4. They explain their boldness in addressing Jerusalem's religious leaders when they are uh, proclaiming Christ by saying, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. The Apostle Paul told one of his Roman interrogators that the way Christ directed Paul's life course had not escaped the official's notice, and this is now his phrase, because these things were not done in a corner. Confidence in what was unseen, confidence in the loving God, was underscored, was, was established by experiencing the world. We have probably the, the, the greatest statement of this principle in the first epistle of John, where there is the same reliance on first-hand experience as the basis for the Christian message. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. These passages from the epistles in the New Testament follow a pattern that was established securely in the gospel, beginning with our text for this morning. John records, after Philip had encountered Jesus, Philip told his friend Nathaniel he had found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote Jesus of Nazareth. But Nathaniel knew all about Nazareth. Nathaniel knew that Nazareth was a place from which the Messiah could not come. My mind is made up about Nazareth. Don't confuse me with the facts about Jesus. And Philip's simple response was, come and see. Later in the Gospel of John, we have the wonderful story of Jesus at the well of Sychar, dealing in his uh, own way with the, the woman of Samaria. She spoke with Jesus. She went back into the town and told her fellow citizens to put aside their prejudices against Jewish teachers and, in her words, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Well, the people, of course, knew that nothing like that could come out of Judea, and yet they came out to look at Jesus to hear him, and this was their conclusion. They said, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that it is truly the Savior of the world. And then Jesus most memorably responded in this same way to the disciples of John, who came and asked him on behalf of John, who was in prison, could this one be the Messiah? And we might, I might, as an academic, have responded with a long, detailed, theological exposition. But Jesus said, no, tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. In these scriptural cases, the evidence of experience was to guide thinking. What, we, what the people of Jesus' day knew ahead of time, their mental dispositions were not unimportant, 
but the most important thing was what they experienced. Now, I do think that the most important uh, significance of these passages from the Old Testament, particularly the New Testament, are to give us an insight into the nature of the Christian faith itself. All of these passages, in one way or another, concern the surface implausibility of an incarnate deity. God is transcendent. God is without time. We are imminent. We are in time. How can there be an incarnate deity? My mind is made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. But the, but the gospel story gives us is an incarnate deity, and it shows the further plausibility that hope for human salvation can rest on this one who became flesh for us and for our redemption. To all forms of unbelief, the response of the gospel is the same. Come and see. My mind is made up about myself. Don't confuse me with facts of my limitations. Don't confuse me with my need for God. Come and see, the gospel says. Come take a look carefully at yourself. Take a look carefully at how you turn inward away from others. Take a look carefully at how you put the interests of your tribe always before the interests of other tribes. And when you come and see, you will realize your need for a savior. Similarly, the gospel shows us that the hope of a Christian is coming and seeing. How could the God of the universe, how could the one who knows all things, the one of great power, the one who is above all imagination, how could that one be interested in me? How could that one be interested in my lostness? How could that one be interested in a life I have screwed up by my own sinfulness? How could that one be interested in, in, in the mistakes I have made in my life, in the, in, in the insignificance of my life? And the answer is, come and see. Listen to the one who says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's a great poem by the um, 17th century metaphysical poet George Herbert entitled The Agony, which begins by talking about philosophers. Philosophers was the word in the 17th century that we would say uh, scientists, and how philosophers have measured and, and examined and walked around the earth, but philosophers have not really understood sin and love. And this, then, is how the poem proceeds. Who would know sin? Let him repair unto Mount Olivet. There he shall see a man so wrung with pains that all his hair, his skin, his garments bloody be. Sin is that press and vice which fortheth pain to hunt his cruel food through every vein. If you want to understand the human condition, if you want to understand sin, look at Jesus in the garden as he suffers. But then it goes on. Who knows not love? Let him assay and taste that juice. Let him assay, try and experience that juice, which on the cross a pike did set again a brooch. Then let him say, if ever he did taste the like, love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. Tasting and seeing what Christ has done for us, coming and seeing the good news 
in Christ is the Christian's hope. Is there a payoff in daily life? Is this great truth of the gospel that coming and seeing is the way to understand God's plan of salvation? Is there a payoff outside of the important things of Christian salvation? And I think, in fact, there is. The pattern that we see in the Old Testament and even more in the life of Christ points to a related pattern of living. Do we want to learn about something in the world? We come to know God best by correcting our prejudgments as we come and see. So also do we begin to understand about the world when we suspend our prejudgments and experience the world coming and seeing. The principle that seems to be laid down is that if we want to know something, we must not only think about something, but actually experience it. If we know God by experiencing him, so also do we come to know the world. Now, of course, I'm an academic, so I've got to make some qualifications. Uh, what, we, what we think about ahead of time can be important. There is no such thing as simply observing our, our positions in life, our age, uh, our, our place of living does influence us, and these things are all true. But the scripture would seem to point the way to, to allow us to escape from the dictatorship of our preoccupations. A reliance on experience is a way toward genuine insight, and this principle is well established in many biblical texts. Relying upon experience to understand things allows us to escape from deductive dogmatism, from what we know is the case before we experience it and don't need then to experience it. There are, I'm afraid, too many examples showing the bad end to which people come by not following the come and see experience. So I'm a historian and have to deal with events in American history. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, the United States was sunk into the morass of what we now call the Vietnam War because American officials just knew, just simply knew what communism was like, didn't take too much time to really uh, suss out on the ground what conditions were like in Vietnam, they had the attitude, my mind is made up about worldwide communism. Don't confuse me with the facts about what's happening in Vietnam. And the result was a morass. More recently, different administration, different, different uh, political party uh, was the situation that led to the second Iraq war. My mind is made up about Saddam Hussein. Don't confuse me with the facts. And that way of thinking led to great disaster, led to the ongoing situation of, of the United States mired in conflict in the Middle East. Well, it's pretty easy to, to uh, relate these stories that have to do with other people. The difficult ones are when they concern yourself. So I was thinking of the many uh, illustrations I could give of myself where coming and seeing actually helped out, and I have one that's a little bit embarrassing since I'm a right-minded historian. Um, I, I have all of my prejudices in order. Um, I don't share the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the crude thoughts of the mass. But in fact, when it comes to uh, racial divisions in the United States, I'm a product of United States history. So I knew, even though I 
really wasn't supposed to know. I knew that white folk were just smarter than black folk. I mean, this was not a fashionable thing to say. This was not a thing that you would act upon. This is not a thing that you would um, parade in public, but you just knew that that was the case. Until the day when I came and saw it. I was at a meeting in Washington, D.C. on the Enlightenment in American history, a topic I'd been studying for about 25 years. I considered myself expert. I considered myself above the crowd. But it turned out that this conference was immensely uh, significant in what it had to say about the, the major figures in American history. And there was one particular figure at the conference who was just a fount of information, whose information bubbled up all over the place, who dominated the meeting because of the brilliance of his, of his uh, understanding of American philosophy, the way in which philosophy related to uh, other things in life. And of course, he was of color, a person of color dominated a meeting where I presupposed that my knowledge would be supreme. I had to come and see to have my prejudice destroyed. And believe me, on that day, the prejudice was left in crumbling shambles. Coming and seeing is a way out of the bondage of our own predispositions. Coming and seeing is a way out of what we know to be true until we experience the facts of this life. During World War II, the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, recommended that the approach to knowledge via experience was the best strategy for churches to handle social or political issues. In particular, the archbishop thought that churches should not pontificate on what he called any particular policy since experience in the world was the crucial element in adapting any specific way ahead. And here's what he had to say. A policy always depends on technical decisions concerning the actual relations of cause and effect in the political and economic world. About these, a Christian, as such, has no more reliable judgment than an atheist, except so far as he should be more immune to the temptations of self-interest. Temple did not mean that Christian principles or truth claims are unimportant. He did mean that knowledge of a particular situation gained by experience with that particular situation was critical for determining the best policies. And when we understand the nature of the gospel, where coming and seeing is so important for grasping the central truths of Christian life, we can understand the wisdom of Archbishop Temple's advice and how Christians should act toward life in the world. Being willing to learn through experience reflects the pattern by which God himself was made known to earnest seekers in the Old Testament and to the followers of Jesus in the New. It was, it, it was not a situation in the scriptures where people could say, my mind is made up don't confuse me with the facts. It was rather that people were urged to experience what God was doing in Jesus Christ and thereby to know what was most important in life. This is the key to finding God as he made himself known, and it is a key to living, living properly in the world. This coming and seeing approach provides an especially strong counter to the general human tendency to trust our own conclusions 
instead of letting our ideas be challenged by contact with the world beyond our minds, is also a good way of learning to live as the followers of Jesus live. Can any good thing really come out of Nazareth? Come and see.